Good to be back. It's good to see each one of you. Appreciate your being here. We continue our study in a very important book, the book of Galatians. First of all, the letters we believe written in the New Testament, one of the earliest writings, in fact, in the whole New Testament. There's a dominant theme in the book of Galatians. The theme is we're saved by faith, by faith alone. We're not saved by obeying the Old Testament Mosaic law. And so necessarily as we go through the book, this thought will come up ever so often. Today our scripture begins in chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> we actually want to go through the end of the chapter, but first of all, a few verses to begin. Brothers, I speak after the fashion of men. Although it is but a man's covenant, a man's agreement, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or sets it aside or adds to it. I added that first part. But you can't change it. Say when you have a will, it's been signed, the testator passes away, you're not supposed to tamper with it. It needs to stay the way it was. And so it is with God's covenant. You can't change it. It stays the way it is. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. Now to Abraham and to his seed, the promises were made. He says not, and to seeds, plural, as to many, but as of one. And to your seed. And then it says, who is Christ? And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed beforehand of God in Christ, the law which was 400 and 30 years afterwards, cannot disannul. Said the law came along centuries later, it can't change the promise that was made, that it should make the promise of no effect. Because if the inheritance be from the law, it is no more by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So what is he saying here? He say, long before the Mosaic law was instituted, God had made a promise to Abraham. That promise cannot be altered by a later covenant. And what was that promise to Abraham? Well, let's go and look at it. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we find this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make from you a great nation and I will bless you 
and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them who bless you, and curse him who curses you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Last of verse 2, you shall be a blessing. Last of verse 3, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there's the promise. Well, the Mosaic law didn't come along till 430 years after that. And that can't change, it says here, this initial promise. The promise stands. And what was the promise? Abraham would have many descendants and everybody, the whole world would be blessed through him or at least offered a blessing if they would accept it. The promise persists. Notice in verse 16 it says the seed is Christ. That's very interesting. I remember one of the guys in seminary was expressing that thought, and I thought that was quite interesting. But something else, though, that's involved, along with that thought that Christ is the seed, he's the promised seed, the promised descendant, the Messiah, the last verse of this chapter, Galatians 3.29, says this, if you be Christ's seed, Christ's, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promised. So it says if we're Christians, if we believe in Jesus, we are Abraham's seed. Now, is that a contradiction of what he just said? Well, no, not really. Seed can be thought of as a singular thing, specifically referring to Christ, or as a plurality. Abraham would have descendants like the stars in multitude. And so there's both this thought, a singular thought. It's Christ. He's the epitome of it all. He's the promised seed. He's the one we see prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And yet we become also Abraham's seed. It's an amazing thing seems to have a, at least a dual understanding here. Now back again to the book of Galatians. We find picking up with first of all that was 15, 16, 17. And so we find picking up with verse 19. Galatians 3, 19. Oh, I had the wrong book there. Galatians 3, 19. Therefore, what does the law serve? What's its purpose? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one 
but God is one. So what's the purpose of the law then? What's it all about? Well, because of sin, God added it those centuries later, but it was added until the seed, Christ, should come. Promise was made to Abraham. Promise applies to Jesus. And angels were involved. Somehow they were helpful in establishing the Mosaic law. And notice how it says in verse 20, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. If you're gonna mediate between two positions, you've gotta have two involved. <laughs> you mediate when there are two points of view or two people or two situations. As we think of that, we also think of how it's expressed in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. So there's God here. There's humanity down here. And there's a mediator someone who, in a sense, brings them together, someone that helps them to have one accord, to be in agreement. And it tells us that mediator, that go-between, that umpire, is Christ. God is one, there's humanity, Christ is the in-between. He's the one who makes things right between God and man. But notice also, God is one. We find this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. And so we find, at least in those two or three places, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, clearly shows us that God is one. Now, in the Old Testament, and I've mentioned this before, first of all, he's revealed as Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth, it tells us in the very first verse of the Bible. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that there's one Lord. Eventually he's revealed with the name of Jehovah. Jehovah apparently contains the thought of self-existence and eternal. He's a self-existent eternal God. He's one. But there's a glimpse of something else I believe here. In the initial word Elohim, the I-M is a plural. It's like adding an S in English. We see a plurality, I believe, even in the very beginning of the Bible, in the term Elohim. As we go to the New Testament, we find God is revealed as Father. We find the Son is revealed as God, Jesus, Jesus. 
we find the Holy Spirit is revealed as God. Now that seems like three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet we've seen very clearly scriptures I've just read that God is one. Now you might say, how is that possible? Sounds like three, not one. Some try to illustrate it in different ways. One of the common illustrations is like an egg, a shell, the white part, and then the yolk. That seems to be somewhat lacking in my opinion. The illustration that I prefer is H2O. Of course, you know what that is, don't you? It's water. But H2O can exist in three forms, can it not? H2O can get real cold and become solid. We call it ice. H2O can be like normal temperature and it be, is water. It can be put on the fire and it comes out to be steam. Uh, it becomes a gas. And so one thing, which is all H2O, it's yet three things at the same time. Well, that kind of helps me grasp maybe a little bit what God is like. I don't think it's a perfect illustration, but we do find God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet a strong emphasis in both Old and New Testaments that God is one. Now going back here then to Galatians chapter 3, picking up with verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Let it not be so. For if I, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, assuredly righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise may be by faith of Jesus Christ, might be given to them who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now that's an amazing and powerful set of statements there. Dropping back to verse 21, you see the promises again. They have the authority. They can't be changed by the law. What does the Old Testament Mosaic law do? Does it give life? Can it make us alive spiritually? Can it get our sins forgiven and take us to heaven? No, that's what he's been telling us here in verse 21. The, through the promise though, such salvation will come. So what does the Mosaic law actually do in part? Well, besides pointing to Christ, does what it says in verse 22. 
the scripture has concluded all under sin. So the Old Testament has a function here. It points out that we've all failed. We've all, all done things that we shouldn't have done. And if we accept that function, then we admit ourselves to be in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So it says in verse 22, the scripture has concluded all under sin. <laughs> so that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them who believe. So the first step is to admit that we're sinners. The second step is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. The law helps us do that. Before it came, we were kept under the law, verse 23. Shut up to the faith which should afterwards be revealed. But then notice what it says in verse 24. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster. That could be translated tutor or maybe teacher. For what purpose? It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Old Testament mosaic law brings us to Jesus. Why? So that we might be justified by faith. Back in those days, they had these tutors that would really take care of the children of particularly people who had means. And they would teach them many things. And it says the purpose, really, of the Old Testament law was like that teacher. The purpose is to help us realize we're sinners and we need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. And that our justification is not by the works of the law, but it is by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And it's by faith alone, not by faith plus some works. And it goes on to say in verse 25, after faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. <laughs> Once we have faith in Christ, you see, we're no longer under what? The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And of course, we've talked about this, haven't we, several times recently, that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, has been superseded and fulfilled by the New Testament law. Jesus inaugurated that, you will recall, at the Last Supper. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament. And so the New Testament then comes in, and the law leads us to the New Testament and faith in Jesus, and not the works of the law, but trust in God through Jesus. We're no longer under the schoolmaster after we have faith no longer under the Mosaic law. And verse 26, this is a verse I memorized many years ago. I believe it's a tremendous statement. I believe it encapsulates what Galatians is all about. It says, you are all the children of God. How? You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So it's not the Mosaic law that saves us. It's our faith in Christ Jesus. And I've said this several times that throughout the book of Galatians, 
this truth is being hammered home. And here we find it very clearly expressed in so few words in verse 26. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And it's only by that trust in him, not by our good deeds or the works of the law. Having said all that, goes on the last three verses, Galatians 3, 27 through 29. Because as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, back to verse 27. Baptized into Christ, put on Christ. First of all, we think of the water baptism. Water baptism is, in a sense, the first public step when you become a Christian. You want other people to know about it. You're not ashamed of trusting Jesus. And Jesus commissioned the disciples and the church to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice the name, it's singular, and yet there are three that are mentioned. At any rate, we do find that Baptism is very important at the beginning of one's Christian life. And so when a person believes in Jesus, they should follow through and be baptized in water. I remember before, I, I think it was before I became a Christian, that the pastor that I was going to the church there, he had a way of really kind of yelling when he preached and at one point there, toward the end of the service, I think he left the pulpit and he was down below. Maybe it was communion Sunday, I don't remember. But very unbombastically, <laughs> very humbly, he basically said, we believe in immersion because the Greek word baptizo means immerse. He said something to that effect. And in contrast to his more loud, kind of shouting way of preaching, when he said it so softly and humbly, you, you kind of perked up and listened. But what he said was right. The Greek word does mean basically to immerse or, or to dip. And so that's why we do it that way. Years later, they started doing it a different way but also kept that way in vogue as well. But that's why we baptize that way, because the word does mean to dip or to immerse. And so we put the whole person, the body, totally into the water. But there's another reason here, at least one other reason. When you put a person totally down in the water, it's a picture of burial. You can look at Romans chapter 6, the beginning of the chapter. It explains that. 
person going down into the water, it's a picture of a burial. So it's like we have died, we're buried, and then when we come up from the water, it's a picture of resurrection. And so by doing this, we're not only picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we're picturing the spiritual death, burial, and resurrection of the person who's being baptized. Beautiful in symbolism. It's like I'm burying my old self, my sins, and now I'm alive in Jesus and I'm planning to live the rest of my life for him. We're baptized into Christ. How beautiful that is. It doesn't make us Christian, but it's a witness and it's an obedient act following our faith in him. But there is another baptism too, isn't there? Jesus spoke about baptism of the Holy Spirit, and so did John the Baptist. And that happens when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you. That's what the scripture teaches. And so every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot in this scripture, the New Testament, especially about the Holy Spirit in us and how he helps us and how he guides us and how he teaches us and how he's always with us and how he, like Christ, will never leave us or forsake us. And so we're baptized in Christ in the water and there is the Holy Spirit that then comes and we are to be filled with him. So that's a beautiful statement, isn't it, here back in Galatians 3.27. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's like we put off the old dirty clothes and we put on nice new clean clothes. <laughs> They've been to the cleaners. They're all nice. And that's the way we're to live for him a new life, we put him on, we put off the old, we're new creatures in him. And then verse 28, this is quite a verse. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, that is a slave or, or free. There's neither male or female. Why? You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous statement of equality, is it not? It basically tells us men are no better than women. <laughs> women are just as good as men. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're Caucasian or black or Chinese or Mexican or whatever, it says in Christ, we're all the same. We're all equal. How important this is. Maybe if many of the people in the South had fully understood and grasped this truth, we wouldn't have had to have the Civil War. <laughs> but even after the Civil War, which was followed by several amendments to hope for equality, we find that there was a lot of prejudice where you ate, where you went to the bathroom, even in churches. But what does this verse say? It says we're all one. <laughs> we're all equal in Jesus. You're as good as the other person. 
whether you're a woman or a child or a man or whatever, whatever your race may be, whatever your sex may be, whatever your education may be, whatever your financial standing may be, we're one in Christ, we're all equal in him. Do you really understand that? Have you grasped that? <laughs> Do you believe that? I'm no better than you. We're all one in the Lord Jesus. Billy Graham, he's no better than we are. We're one in Christ. Of course, he's gone to heaven now. And then the last verse, verse 29, chapter 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. And I referred to that earlier. But when we are Abraham's seed by faith in Jesus, we are heirs of the promise. What was promised to Abraham now is passed on to us. Remember how I pointed out a message or two ago how that we're all spiritual Jews if we're Christian. And so we see this not only in verse 29, go back to verse 7 last Sunday. Don't you know, therefore, that they who are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And then I also brought in the last two verses of Romans chapter 2. Very clearly it spells out that believers are spiritual Jews. And so many times Jews have been persecuted. And we enter into persecution, do we not, if we belong to Jesus? We want to live for him. We want to live the life that he tells us we should live. And so we take our cues not from what the government decides is right and wrong. We take our cues from what Jesus and God tells us is right and wrong. And where do we find that? Well, we find that, don't we, in the Holy Scriptures. So it's important that we read it and study it and not only fill our minds with God's morality, but that we experience God's truth and morality in everyday life. Rubber meets the road. Are we going to follow God or are we going to follow society? And of course, it was a vast difference too when Christianity burst on the scene in the Roman times. They had very different ideas back then. And finally, Christianity helped overcome some of these wrong ideas. Christianity and Christ should set the standard. They are the standard. And so it's up to us to find out what true morality and light of God are by studying the scripture. Next Sunday, we plan to go into chapter 4, basically the first part of it. It's really a, a fantastic book. As I say, sometimes it's repetitious. It wants to get across this basic thought that we're saved by faith and not by works. <laughs> we're saved by trusting Jesus. He did the work. He's our righteousness. This is only received by trusting in him. God wants us to trust him, to believe in him, to live for him. May we do that.
May we pray together. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths out of your book. We thank you that you used the Apostle Paul, primary missionary to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, to preach these truths, to share these vital things with us, that we too might believe in Jesus, that we too might turn away from sin, that we too might acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, that our righteousness is in Jesus and him alone. He died for our sins. He came alive from the dead. Truly may we repent of our sins and trust in him. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you and praise you and would submit anew and afresh to you at this time. May we have a genuine living faith in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.